long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Now, if you're a longtime listener, that opening music you just heard might sound familiar. It's actually our original theme music, a song called Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe. Uh, William Norman, who heard the version of the theme that I used for last Wednesday's show, took it upon himself to recut it to include the bits you heard at the very beginning, which, which I think was a great addition. Thank you, William, very much for that. I appreciate it. Uh, and I hope you like the new theme. I, I felt that our kind of no music at all opening was too, too stark and bland and that this is a definite improvement. Now, longtime listeners might also recall that for a while we used sort of a smooth jazz theme, which seems like very few people other than me like, so we, we scrapped that. So if you've got a strong opinion, really either way, uh, let us know. You can reach us by email, mail at politicsguys.com or by commenting on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And now on to today's show where I am joined by a special guest co-host, Kristen Matheny. Uh, Kristen is uh, really uniquely qualified to, to be a co-host here today. She has a master's in public administration from the University of Southern California, which is one of the top programs in the entire country. She has expertise in quantitative and qualitative research, as well as in domestic and foreign policy. Not only that, but she's worked for several candidates for public office. She served as a field director for a presidential campaign, a director of communications, a social media director, and a grassroots organizer. In addition to that, she's worked as a, pro a podcaster, which is how I first heard about her, thanks to the Policy Scout podcast, which she did for a while, and I was really sad to see that end. Uh, and she's also worked in conservative media as a coordinating producer at Newsmax Media, which is a really major conservative news and opinion outlet. And so I am just really thrilled to be doing the show with her today. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're so glad. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. So, you know, I, I thought we'd start, uh, un unfortunately, I guess, with the partial government shutdown, which is now in its, uh, if I'm counting right, its 29th day. Um, yeah. And, and of course, as the shutdown drags on, opinion polls indicate that the public seems to be blaming the president more than Congress for the shutdown. And President Trump's approval rating, which wasn't all that high in the first place, has taken a slight dip even further. And also now the administration has called back more workers without pay, of course, to kind of blunt the impact of the shutdown as much as possible. But still, a lot of agencies are definitely feeling the strain. And I think really about the only clear positive development is legislation that was passed by Congress this week and signed by the president that will give federal workers back pay when the shutdown ends. And it's not like this is a, a no cost thing. It's while it's difficult to calculate the overall cost that one estimate, for instance, from S&P Global Ratings puts it at $1.2 billion in loss of real GDP every week. And the president's own Council of Economic Advisors says the shutdown will reduce quarterly economic growth by just over half a percentage point every month. Then, you know, and then there was, of course, I know you followed this 
back and forth between Speaker Pelosi and President Trump. Uh, uh, po- you know, Pelosi saying, well, maybe you should delay the State of the Union uh, for um, security reasons. And then, yeah, that the president saying, well, you know, I don't think you should be going to Afghanistan, so I'm not going to give you a military, uh, military aircraft. And then just before we got ready to record today, this is Saturday morning, was the news that President Trump would be making a major announcement on the shutdown and border security. Now, from what we know right now, he won't be declaring a national emergency, but that the announcement will be about some sort of a way forward. And I'm thinking this probably will have something to do with, on Friday, we learned that House Democrats plan to include an additional billion dollars in border security funding in the bills that they plan to pass to fund the part of the government that has been shut down. So I think that pretty much brings us up to date. So, uh, Christian, what what's your take on you know kind of the current state of these things and, and and sort of how you expect it to play out? Well, you know, I I think I mentioned to you in an email yesterday that I sort of felt like there was a lot of um, I hate to use the term, but it's the best term I can think of chest something going on between uh, Speaker Pelosi and and President Trump. Um, you know, I think that each you know each of them is trying to force the other one's hand. Um, we're at sort of a stalemate and, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because we have this announcement coming, um, today. Well, it's going to be later today at, at 3 PM. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what goes down, but, you know, probably, um, not much will change, um, because it doesn't look like there's going to be, um, an emergency declaration. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of chest dumping. I mean, frankly, you know, for me personally, I look at it and, and the whole situation sort of makes me want to roll my eyes. Um, you know, I've, I've considered the, the the idea of maybe doing an emergency declaration. I don't know that that it will work because an emergency declaration requires, I think it's, I think the the standard is an obvious immediate threat. Um, and you know, depending on who you talk to, if you talk to somebody on the right, they say, oh yes, this is an obvious immediate threat. And if you talk to somebody on the left, they say, what are you talking about? So um, you know, I I think I think it's really interesting this whole chess something thing. You know what it kind of reminds me of is the Dr. Seuss book, um, the Butter Battle book. <laughs> <laughs> you know where um, I, I read it to my kids all the time. Where you know you've got somebody on one side who's you know holding the bomb over the edge of the wall, and somebody on the other side, and you know the book kind of ends and says who's going to drop the bomb first. I, I think that's kind of what we're staring at to make a little analogy out of it. Oh, I, I, I like that. I think that might be the first time that Dr. Seuss has ever come to play in the show. But yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it, I mean, and to me, of course, it's there's just the political calculus is there's not a whole lot of incentive for either side to to really give much in this. I mean, maybe a little bit, a little bit more for for the president, given that it seems to be hurting him a little bit more. But but even then, I, I don't get the sense that the president cares a whole lot about that so long as he holds on to his base and from all indications his base is even more energized about this so i don't think he sees that he's losing this in any meaningful way you know some people have pointed out looking at the senate you know what's mitch mcconnell doing because he's constantly said we're not going to take up anything that the president can't support and to me even though boy i have my issues with mitch mcconnell He's doing his job as majority leader, which is protecting his members from a tough vote. He doesn't want them to have to vote on that. And so I get that. I might not like it, but I certainly get it from a practical politics standpoint. And 
another thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, there's really no real pressure on Senate Republicans to actually do this, because if you look at if you look at the map for 2020, there are only two Republican senators running for reelection in states that Hillary Clinton won. And that's you know, Cory Gardner in Colorado and Susan Collins in Maine. So the rest of them are pretty much they're pretty much safe. The things that they would be worrying about maybe more than anything else would be being primaried from the right, you know, if they take up some kind of a stance. So so honestly, unless the political calculus changes and it will have to right? because these agencies can't keep on going like this. So the calculus is going to change now as to who it's going to hurt more. I think in the end, I, my sense is that it would hurt a, a rational president more. But Donald Trump works in mysterious ways. So I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, um, I think that that was the the key question. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano. I, I listen to him whenever he's on. I've read his books and, um, you know, I, I think he brought up a really good point um, a lot during this process. And that is that, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is obviously not, not an exact figure, but, you know, 95% of what politicians do is with an eye on reelection. And of course, you know, you have somebody like, President Trump, who, um, you know, it's, he's, I mean, you know, he's an entertainer at heart. He's an entertainer. And, you know, as much as he is the president, he's loving this attention. And so, you know, a lot of this is about getting more attention so that he can get reelected. He, he probably has the blinders on because I think, um, you know, I think that that's what happens when you're, you know, surrounded by your base and you're surrounded by nodding heads and yes, men and women, you know, um, you tend to have the blinders on and you think that what you're saying is popular. And, um, you know, I think Andrew Napolitano made, made a judge Napolitano made a really good point about, you know, who is this going to hurt more? And, you know, right now it's looking like it will hurt President Trump more. Although, um, you know, I do think, you know, that being said, I do think that we need to have, if nothing else, we need to have a huge national debate on immigration, um, you know, because right now it looks like a stalemate. But if nothing else, I hope and I and I'm not sure that it will happen. But I just hope that this opens the door for that. I, I totally agree with you. And that's why I was sort of disappointed where, I mean, earlier, I think it was earlier this week uh, that uh, the Democrats uh, kind of put forward the idea of, well, maybe we can make some sort of a deal with that includes uh, uh, kind of permanent status, you know, a kind of a big DACA immigration reform thing. And the president seemed to, from what I understand, the president said he wasn't interested in that. But to me, and even some Republicans have been calling for that, to me, that seems to be the logical way forward. And I've actually said, you know, I mean, this idea that walls in and of themselves are immoral, that's, that's I think that's ridiculous. And I, I would be, I said it last week, I'll say it again, I would be fine spending $10 billion on walls and fences and so forth if it involved comprehensive immigration reform, because I think the walls don't address the crux of the problem. That's just, I mean, and there's certainly a symbolic element, but if we really want to deal with this situation, it can't be just about, it can't even be primarily about building more walls. Right. You, you know, I, um, I, I look back this week, I was trying to remember, I, I, I remember, you know, President Trump saying multiple times that, that um, Pelosi and Schumer and, you know, I guess people on the left had voted for a wall. And I, you know, I looked it up. I said, I don't remember them voting for a wall. So in 2006, they voted for, um, this, I think it was called the Secure Fence Act. Yeah. And, you know, there was all this rhetoric 
um, in the news the last week about like a, a fence versus a wall. And so I think you're right on about the fact that, you know, a, a fence or a wall, it's a deterrent, but it's really not anything else. Is it a panacea? Is it going to make everything better? Is it, you know, a magic pill? No, it's not. And yeah. so, you know, I, I just, I, I hope that this is something that opens the door for that debate because it needs to happen. But, and, and, you know, I can, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about this, but I can actually see the president just saying, you know, I'm just going to, I am not going to give on this at all because just like his, his position on trade, it's like, despite all kinds of opposition from the establishment, it seems like he is hell bent on, I am going to push through on this and I am going to, you know, and I can see him taking the same attitude with this saying, I will get a wall and I don't care what I have to sacrifice to do this because he knows that that 35, 38%, whatever is actually going to be even stronger if he sticks to his guns. You know, some people on the right even have said, well, the president's painted himself in a corner on this, but I don't think he sees it that way. I think he's just kind of saying, this is what my people want and I'm going to stick with them and I'm not interested in anything else. Yeah, I, you know, um, I've had a lot of conversations with um, fellow Republicans, some of whom are, you know, all over the map in terms of, you know, what what type of Republican they are. And I think that, um, you know, all of us sort of agree that this, that the wall, which sort of, you know, was an early on, I would say it was a campaign promise. I mean, I went to, I went to a a Trump rally and um, I, you know, this is, you know, back in 2016. And um, I mean, every 10 minutes, there were chance of build the wall and, you know, Mexico will pay for it. And, and it became a, more than a campaign promise. It almost became like a like subtext, you know, it was like a almost like a mantra for people who voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, without that sort of key campaign promise, he will not get reelected. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's important, like I said, you know, 95% of politicians are, you know, everything they do is with an eye on, on re-election. And I think Trump is no exception to that. And, you know, I think he knows, I, I don't, I think he's, you know, smart, he is savvy. And I think he knows that if, that if he doesn't at least make headway on it, um, and, you know, there's some disagreement on the right about that. Some people say, well, he has to build it. Well, I don't think it's going to happen in the next year and a half, two years, you know, but, you know, I think that if he at least makes headway on it, um, that, you know, that he that he has a much better chance of getting reelected because, you know, people will fade away. People, you know, voters are fickle. And if, you know, if you're not doing what and, which, and rightfully so, if, if you haven't done what you promised to do, people won't vote for you. And so, you know, I think that's important. I think that's something that's kind of a consensus on the right. Yeah. Yeah. And which is why I don't think Donald Trump can settle for a massive new fence building program or anything like that. I mean, it needs to be a big imposing physical barrier because of the symbolic importance of that sort of thing. What did he said, what did he say? 95 stories tall. Didn't he say that in <laughs> with a big, beautiful door or something? Yeah. That would I mean, be, yeah, that would be a big, beautiful wall for sure. Yeah. Oh, that would be, it would be big. I, I don't know. No, and that's beautiful. so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. For some people, it would be, it would be beautiful. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, uh, before we move on, uh, how long uh, kind of prognosticate here? Do you see this ending anytime soon? What do you, what do you think? What, what's your sense of this? I, you know, I, I, I kept saying last night, uh, my husband and I were talking about it and, um, you know, he's, 
I tend to be a little more, you know, a little more critical of Trump, I think, because I've worked in politics. I've worked on so many campaigns. I frankly, I'm a little jaded. So I tend to take things with a grain of salt. Um, and, you know, he's he's a believer. And, you know, we were talking about it and he's and he seemed very hopeful um, about this announcement today at 3 p.m., whatever that may be. I mean, I, I think, you know, I would probably reserve judgment just to see what Trump would say, because if there's one thing that that President Trump has shown us in his, you know, time in office, it's that he is unpredictable, completely unpredictable. And he, and you know, very few times have I said, "Oh, he's going to do this," and then he he does exactly that. So you know, it's always a twist. There's a, and you know, I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. I don't see this ending anytime soon. I mean, you know, between me and you and everybody listening, I I just I. I don't see this ending anytime soon. Like I said, I see chest something. I see, you know, there's obviously a, a very personal um, sort of bitterness between Pelosi and Trump. And, you know, and I and I do think a lot of this has to do with, um, I mean, we can't forget the significance of there's a, an election coming up, you know, and people are starting to announce their races. And, and, you know, I think a lot of that is with an eye on that. Yeah, sad. Sadly, I, I I agree with you. Uh, sadly for the country, not that I agree with you, but but yeah, it is it is unfortunate. And I I hope I hope we're both wrong and that this does end in some in in some near term future. But uh, I, I I'm skeptical as well. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, there was other news this week. For instance, William Barr, who was Attorney General in the George H. W. Bush administration, this week he went through. Senate hearings to, well, to get his old job back, this time under President Trump. Now, the focus of the hearings has been largely the Mueller investigation, particularly Barr's willingness to support it, as well as to release Mueller's findings to the public. Now, there's there's little doubt that Barr will be confirmed by a Republican majority Senate. And based on his remarks, it seems that he does support the Mueller investigation. He has a high opinion of Bob Mueller personally, and that he'll release as much of the final report as he believes that he can. And these statements by Barr were more than enough for Senate Republicans, though many Democrats were hoping for a far more definitive answer on releasing the report. And they expressed concern that Barr, who earlier sent an unsolicited memo to the Justice Department criticizing an aspect of the Mueller investigation that he might not be a fair and impartial judge of these things. So, Kristen, it's pretty clear to me that Barr is going to be confirmed. But but I'm wondering, do you think there's anything to the concerns that a lot of Democrats have about him? Well, you know, obviously, as a as a Republican, you know, I look at somebody like Barr and, you know, he's got this very, you know, interesting and, and incredible resume. I mean, the man is highly qualified to do the job. Obviously, he's done it before. But, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, if I was a Democrat, if I was to look at it, you know, with the shoe on the other foot, um, I do think that I would have some concerns because it does seem even though he has a high opinion of Robert Mueller and, you know, they, they have, you know, a bit of a history and, you know, um, he has made a lot of statements saying that the probe was, I, I believe he said, um, fatally misconceived. Um, and, and I, and he said that like fairly recently. So I, you know, I, I believe that, um, 
you know, if I was a Democrat, I would have some concerns over that. You know, if if your attorney general believes that the whole probe has been misconceived, you know, maybe that would raise a red flag. I mean, obviously, as a Republican who does think that the probe was misconceived, you know, obviously I'm buying that. And I think most, you know, Republicans, you know, and Republican lawmakers would agree. Um, but, you know, I he also has made some statements about um he feels like there's no reason to change the policy of not indicting a sitting president, which I think has raised a lot of concerns in the last couple of days, too. So, you know, there, there are all these sort of attached issues. If I was a Democrat, you know, I would be concerned. But, you know, I guess I'm not. So <laughs> I want to speak for Democrats. Well, you know, speaking a- as a Democrat, I guess I'm I'm more confused than anything else in a way, because I, I actually... You know, I, I heard that fatally misconceived thing that a lot of a lot of my friends on the left are are using. And I so I decided, well, maybe I should actually read the whole memo in context that, he, you know, as opposed to just looking at a phrase. And actually, when I read the memo, it was pretty clear to me that this was like a super law nerdy kind of thing. And what he was talking about being fatally misconceived was one aspect of how Mueller understood obstruction. But he also said later in the memo that it's clear to him that a president absolutely can obstruct justice, not a, but just not in this very specific way in one aspect that, and it gets, it gets way deep into the weeds. It could, I mean, it's, it's a pretty long and boring kind of thing, I think, for most folks. But it was a very nuanced kind of thing. I can understand why people, senators who are interested in grandstanding, would take that out of context. But for me, that's not the worrying thing. For me, the puzzling thing, I guess, is uh, Barr is, William Barr is about as establishment as establishment Republicans get. I mean, George H.W. Bush administration, that's like old Republican establishment, right? And so Donald Trump has a history of having a really bad time with establishment Republican people that he's nominated. And his previous attorney general, I mean, yeah. Uh, that go up and smoke pretty quickly and kind of lingered lingered on, you know, a little longer than it needed to. And, you know, yeah, there's definitely some some cause for hesitation here. Yeah. And so and so here's what I'm thinking. So given that and given the fact that Donald Trump is a smart guy who knows what sort of a history he's had with these establishment picks that have been sort of foisted on him. I mean, they're mostly gone now. But so I'm thinking, well, why would he why would he nominate? Barr. And, you know, that, that to me says, well, Barr has some pretty strong views on executive authority and so forth. So I'm not I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm thinking that at least Donald Trump must think that William Barr has his back in some way. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I have no reason to doubt the the integrity or veracity of William Barr. I, I don't agree with a lot of his policy positions. So. But I have to I have to conclude that at least the president thinks that there's something in William Barr, maybe something he said or something that the president has interpreted that that he thinks will protect him if things kind of fall apart, essentially. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the only way that this makes sense to me, given Barr's kind of establishment background. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I found it odd because I, I actually didn't know a lot about Barr um, before all this, you know, kind of 
I, I recognized the name. It was one of those things where I saw the name and I thought, where have I seen that name before? And I went back and did a little research. And one of the things I, you know, came across, and of course, this is not surprising to anyone, is that he donated a lot of money to Jeb Bush's presidential bid. Um, and, and um, you know, so I actually, the very first, one of the, one of the very first campaigns I actually volunteered on ever when I was much, much younger was Jeb Bush's uh, gubernatorial race back in the day here in Florida. And and um, my first job out of college, I mean, you know, I have to disclose all this, was working for George W. Bush's reelection campaign. That was my very first job. I was basically a, com a community organizer for <laughs> George W. Bush. So, you know, um, I understand that that those ties run deep. I, I've drifted away from that sort of establishment republicanism. But, you know, I think that it could be a problem. In the past, though, Donald Trump has 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 kind of a 50-50 track record. Um, you know, from time to time, he's made really good decisions, in my opinion, people like Mike Pompeo, you know, who are who are loyalists, who maybe people had some doubts about, who turned out to be incredibly loyal. But then, of course, there was the decision of Jeff Sessions, who, you know, turned out to be not so loyal and not always in agreement with the Trump. In fact, uh, you know, rarely in disagreement with, with the Trump administration. So, um, you know, there are there are some other things, um, you know, some other decisions that I think as a Democrat, um, you know, somebody might be might find troublesome with Barr, like um, his answer or his non-answer, I should say, about like birthright citizenship and, you know, some other issues going on. But, you know, there like you said, there must be something there that certainly I'm not seeing. I mean, he's not he's not necessarily my favorite pick, but um, I understand why he picked him. And also, you know, kind of riffing on the idea of, um, you know, keeping an eye on reelection, he could be trying, I mean, and this is a long shot, but he could be, you know, pulling a political gambit. This could be an effort to drum up the establishment because he's, Trump has kind of courted the establishment before. He's tried to make nice with Mitt Romney. He's, you know, he's, he's tried to do this. He's, and, um, you know, I, and I have to wonder if maybe there's, there's a there's a thread of truth in there, too. Maybe this is an effort to extend the hand again to somebody who was a Bush crony. You oh. know, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's possible. I, it's not really a, it's not really a standard Trump move, but, but maybe. Yeah. You know, and I, the other thing I wanted to mention is even at least this is my sense of how this is going to play out is once the Mueller report is wrapped up. And of course, then there's by law. Mueller gives a confidential report to, well, it will go to Barr, and then Barr decides what to do with that. I mean, there's no legal requirement that he release anything. Right. And, and, and my sense of things is he'll, he'll put the, I mean, he said he'll put together some sort of a report. I don't think he's going to release the report itself, but he'll put together some sort of a summary. A House Democrats will say, that's not enough. They'll subpoena the report. I think they might actually end up winning on that, and then they will release what they see fit of the report. That, that kind of, that's that's my sense of how this is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, you know, it'll it'll it remains to be seen what happens with Barr, but you know, I I think that again, this is going to be we we just I, I've said it probably too many times, but I don't know that it can be said enough. You know, an eye on that reelection. Yeah. You know, these these are people. A lot of the people who, you know, will be angry with Barr if he, you know, is confirmed. And if he does just that, um, a lot of these people have their eye on that prize for 2020. And so they're going to be trying to, it's going to be kind of like what happened with, the, with Kavanaugh, you know, where these people are kind of coming out of the woodwork and they're talking over each other. And especially on the left, 
the field is going to be very crowded. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we get to our next story, though, I just want to take a quick break. And, and, and uh, well, I was going to thank our newest supporters. We don't actually have any new supporters this week. But if you've been thinking about supporting the show, we would really appreciate it. And to show our appreciation, all of our Patreon supporters get access to a special weekly bonus show, as well as my Nuts and Bolts of American Politics series, which is ongoing. And supporters at the $5 or, or higher Per month level, get access to the in-depth policy series that Jay and I are doing. And so far, we've done episodes on health care and racism and sexism. Next up is guns and the Second Amendment. That should be <laughs> interesting. And there'll be a bunch of good stuff to follow. Also, we have set up a new goal on our Patreon page. Once we get the $750 a month in total support, I will be putting together a multi-part series on politics in the media, and that's going to include discussion of ideological bias in the media, of course, how media has changed and why it matters, how reporters' incentives shape the news, how politicians use the media, media and public opinion, social media and Donald Trump, of course, and lots more. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, you can check it out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Thank you so much. Okay, moving on. This week, federal judge Jesse Furman ordered the Trump administration to halt its plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Furman called the decision of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to include the question arbitrary and capricious and an egregious violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. Furman concluded that Ross, in his words, failed to consider several important aspects of the problem, alternately ignored, cherry-picked, or badly misconstrued the evidence in the record before him, acted irrationally both in light of that evidence and his own stated decisional criteria, and failed to justify significant departures from past policies and practices, a veritable smorgasbord of classic clear-cut APA violations. Now, the administration is going to appeal this, and the case is likely to get an expedited hearing by the Supreme Court, given that the census forms are scheduled to be printed out this summer. And the reason why this matters is that many on the left, and I'm including myself here, believe that a citizenship question will depress the response rate among many people in largely Democratic areas. And by the way, that's a conclusion that's shared by the Census Bureau's own experts. And this matters for congressional representation as well as for many federal programs that use population as a basis for benefits. Now, the administration argues that the question was requested by the Justice Department as being necessary to properly implement the Voting Rights Act, though the record seems to show that this was actually an after-the-fact justification. And the administration also points out, I should mention, that the citizenship question isn't new to the census as the, and that it was asked on a regular basis up until 1950. So to me, Kristen, there are three big questions here I thought we could get into. Uh, let me kind of go over them and I'd like to get your thoughts. Number one, does the administration have a right to add questions to the census? Number two, did they add the citizenship question in the proper manner, which is really the question before us now? And number three, the big question, should we even have a citizenship question on the census? So uh, whichever one of those you want to start with. Well, you know, it's funny because um, this is one of those things that has come up before. This isn't something that, you know, voters are, are, are hearing for the first time. The idea of a, of a citizenship question has 
been a big idea on the right and even with some people on the left in the past. But, I, you know, I think that um, the most important thing and the thing that makes the difference for me is the fact that both the Justice Department and the Commerce Department say that if, you know, somebody who's taking the census fails to answer this, you know, proposed citizenship question, that it's not, um, it won't automatically, um, I guess, negate their, their response. It won't, I don't know, it won't right. automatically, um, Im, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It won't, it won't negate their response. And so, you know, I think that there's a bit of a loophole there. Um, and I think that that loophole is an important loophole that, um, you know, I, I think that there's an argument going on on both sides. I think on the left, uh, you have a lot of uh, lawmakers who are saying that it's going to um, depress like you said, depress the results. I think it's going to discourage, you know, these people think that it's going to discourage people from coming for immigrants and, you know, people who, you know, might not have citizenship or maybe are in the process of trying to obtain their citizenship. It's going to discourage them from filling out the census. And therefore, it's going to give us, you know, sort of this um, inaccurate view uh, for representation, for like allocation of federal resources, funding, stuff like that. But then, you know, it's funny because I heard I hear the same thing on the right, like Liz Peake, um, you know, wrote an op ed fairly recently about this. And she basically made the exact same argument that, um, you know, if we don't have this question on on the census, we could, you know, the same thing could happen. So, again, it's like it's kind of like the butter battle book here where you've got, um, you know, maybe not necessarily dropping the bomb, but you've got two people and, and we're at sort of the stalemate point where um, we're both kind of making the same argument, but with completely different rationales that support our own views on either side. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I definitely, I think, you know, I can go, I can go out on a limb and say that I, I do think that, um, you know, either way you're going to have that result where you're going to have a, uh, sort of discouraging of, you know, people filling out the census, but, you know, whether or not that it's, it's going to be better if they fill out the census and they fill out this question or worse, you know, I don't know, but I think that that, that out by the justice department and the commerce department saying that the answer is not going to just, you know, sort of discount their census is important. Yeah. And, and I agree, but I think even with that though, the census bureau's professional staff has said, well, that still should probably depressed turnout. So I really think, to me at least, how I see it is there, the, the fundamental point of a census is to get an accurate count of everyone. And, and to that end, you want to make sure you make it as unthreatening to people, as simple and straightforward and short as possible. And so I think that is what we need to focus on with the census. Now, that being said, I also agree that it is, it's reasonable and important to have a sense of how many people in this country are citizens versus not. And I'll point out that the Census Bureau actually already asks that, asks that question in the American Community Survey, which is an ongoing survey that they, they, you know, they sample people on a regular basis now. So I would argue that, yes, we need to know that, but the census isn't the proper form from that, given what the intent of the census is. And so... I, I kind of take a, I guess, a middle position on that in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that the census, the importance of the census, can't be discounted. But you know, I, again, like I, I sort of stand at at the kind of in the middle on it, and I say, well, you know, I definitely see both sides. I definitely see how inaccurate counting, uh, inaccurate count on a census could be disastrous. I guess my thought is 
why not put the question on there, allow people to answer it, but then, you know, obviously if they choose not to answer it, let them know that, um, that, that they don't have to answer this question, but if they choose not to answer the question that, you know, nothing will come of it. Um, census won't be discounted per se. Um, you know, I, I guess that's sort of my, my takeaway. Yeah. And, and I, I think that would make sense if, if, People, uh, if if a lot of folks who are in this country, maybe not as citizens, believed that that message. But I think a lot of times, unfortunately, there's just this massive mistrust and this fear from a lot of folks who are in the country and aren't citizens that this somehow will be used against them. And so, and I think, unfortunately, there are some folks who are counting on that. And that's not the pain all you know all Republicans with this broad brush is that they don't care about non-citizens. But I think to some folks, there's, there's that issue and, and they want to do it for that reason. Um, so I don't actually, I, I don't actually question whether or not the administration has a right to add questions to the census. Of course they do. Yeah. But to me, at least, and this is the issue here is that it seems to me almost unquestionably that the commerce department just basically ignored administrative procedures. And there's a reason for these procedures. And I think this should be an argument that resonates with conservatives is that we don't want unelected bureaucrats being able to act in an arbitrary and capricious manner. And the reason that phrase comes up for for listeners who wonder why we've mentioned that before is that's sort of the legal standard in that that we want administrative decisions not to just be willy-nilly, but we want to force administrators, again, these unelected bureaucrats, to act in a way that's clear and transparent and follows these procedures. And it seems to me, based on what we know from the record, that whether or not you agree with there being a citizenship question on the census, the department just didn't follow these procedures. Yeah. Well, I th- you know, I think that um, one of the most important points to make sort of attached to that is that this was one of the um, sort of um, cries of Republicans during the Obama administration, and and certainly I'm including myself in this, is that um, there was, you know, there was a lot of um, there was a, a lot of attention paid to these, you know, bureaucrats making decisions for the American people, and there was almost like a a, a symbiotic relationship between the administration and a lot of these bureaucrats. And should these bureaucrats, you know, they're they're following the administration. Um, you know, and it seems like there's a bit of a departure from that now. And so I think that it would serve Republicans well to question why that's happening. Is it purely political? I mean, you know, spoiler alert, it probably is. Um, you know, again, I, you know, I, I look, I don't like looking at the past. I don't like saying, you know, well, under Obama, this happened and under Trump, this happened. I mean, times are very different and things have changed quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think that there's an important case to be made for that. I think it's something we need to take a look at. Yeah. And, and you know, what, what always disappoints me is, and this is bipartisan, where basically both sides say, well, let's, let's start from our preferred policy outcome and then bend the rules however we want to reach that, essentially. And I think this is what the Commerce Department's doing here. I argued that that was what, you know, President Obama did with, with DACA. I mean, so uh, th- these, these processes are in, are in place to protect people from both parties, really, you know? And so we, I think it's really important not to just abandon procedures and principles because you want to get some sort of a short-term policy game. Because in the end, that really, the process is important. It's boring, but important, you know? 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think that one of the issues that a lot of people had with the Obama administration was that there was this sort of working backwards from a solution. Um, you know, how do, how do we get to this solution? And I think that's a criticism on the right about the left. Um, but, you know, I, you know, again, I, I don't like saying, well, under Obama this and under Trump this, I think it's, you know, counterproductive and it doesn't really apply. But I do think it, you know, you can kind of make the argument if it was good enough, um, you know, for these bureaucrats to follow the rules of the presidential administration under Obama, it should be the same. You know, there should be some consistency. They do need to follow the rules. Um, yeah. <laughs> And um, my sense of things is if this, when this does get to the Supreme Court, I, I mean, looking at the makeup of the court, I think there should probably be a slim majority to actually, uh, to actually conclude that the Administrative Procedures Act was, was violated again. And I think that gets back to, you know, this concern with limiting discretion uh, in, in these agencies. And I think that there are there are a majority of the justices, if they're true to their conservative principles, and I'd like to believe they would be, would have, you know, would have an issue with this. And to me, this should be a, a no-brainer decision just on the merits of the Administrative Procedure Act issue. And, and again, I don't think there should be a citizenship question on the census, but if you go through the process and can justify it and it's transparent, well then, well then, yeah. And now that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen until 2030. So, but, uh, but, but to me, that that this procedure, the process should be honored. Yeah, I and, and I think that 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 argument has come up quite a bit, um, especially now. You know, we have a Supreme Court that tilts to the right, and um, you know, a lot of these a lot of these justices do, you know, kind of follow their conservative principles. So yeah, I, I definitely think that that this is not going to be an issue. And I think conservative, I think the outcome for conservatives who favor um, adding the citizenship question will be happy with the result. But again, you know, it doesn't affect us for another 12 years. So, so you know, a lot can happen between now and then. <laughs> That's for sure. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, let's talk presidential politics a little bit. Of course, this week, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand became the latest entrant in the Democratic presidential sweepstakes. Uh, let's see, she's joined, uh, of course, fellow Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. And to this point, I would say that Gillibrand and Warren are the highest profile Democrats to formally declare. There, there are some other folks who I don't think are going to have a, much of a chance at the nomination, but I'd say very likely they're going to be joined by, a, well, not a cast of thousands, but certainly a handful of other big name candidates in the near future. And so let's let's talk a little bit about Gillibrand. What do you what do you think about what do you think about her? Um, you know, in terms of I guess both in terms of substance and also in terms of how she might do in, well, the Democratic race for one and as Donald Trump's opponent, if she ends up winning the nomination. You know, um, as somebody who's worked on a on a lot of my background is in campaigns and, and I've worked on a lot of campaigns. And so I tend to think more as like a strategist than somebody who can make these, you know, these um, these bigger policy issues. And so, you know, my initial thought with Gillibrand is that she has a lot of things that could come back to haunt her. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, and it's funny because I've, I've talked a little bit about it, but the, I mean, right off the bat, I was surprised um, that her announcement didn't make the waves that I thought it would. It, it almost seemed like an afterthought. I mean, yes, we had some, you know, pretty big things going on in the news, um, you know, since 
since her announcement on um, the late, sh I think it was the late show, yep. wasn't it, Colbert? Um, I, I saw it after the fact. I was more focused on what she was saying. But, you know, I, you know, I, a lot of people criticized her making the announcement there. I don't, um, you know, I understand that this is, you know, media controls, you know, kind of controls the masses in a lot of ways. We're all tuned in and the popular show Colbert is obviously, you know, he's a, he's a nodding head for her. He's, you know, so it's, it's an appropriate venue, I think for her to make the announcement, but I was surprised that it didn't make the news as much as I thought it would. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, frankly, I don't watch the late show. I mean, honestly, I'm not a big Colbert fan, but I'm just not up that late. So, <laughs> so I, I did. I missed it as it happened. I watched it after the fact. I'm not surprised. But like I said, I think that there are a lot of things that could come back to haunt her. I think, you know, her. T she has a lot of really strong ties still to Wall Street, uh, which are, you know, obviously for, you know, if you were a Republican candidate, you know, you might get some flack from the libertarians that, you know, your libertarian leaning set, I should say. But, you know, on the left, um, there's this, you know, there's this very strong anti-Wall Street sentiment, especially with the people that you think would be her demographic, because she's really embraced the Me Too movement. And, um, you know, she she was the person who, um, you know, uh, came out and said that Bill Clinton should have resigned as a result of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And, um, you know, she made some comments about Al Franken resigning, you know, favorable to Al Franken resigning. and. Um, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of the sort of left, her left base, um, you know, will probably support that. But there are a lot of establishment, uh, sorry, establishment Democrats who won't. There are a lot of Hillary Clinton voters who, you know, liked Hillary Clinton or at least voted for her because they didn't like Bernie Sanders or, you know, whoever. And, you know, that, that might have really angered them. I mean, a lot of people still on the left still sort of look up to the to the Clinton machine. And so, you know, that, that probably anchored them. So she, you know, also she's kind of got this like, um, affinity for this, like far left hipster kind of progressive social liberalism, which, you know, a lot of people in, um, you know, for example, middle America who, um, you know, voted for Hillary Clinton and they, like I said, tend to be more establishment. They may not, you know, they may see that, that she doesn't see eye to eye with them. Maybe she doesn't understand their perspectives. So, you know, I don't know. She's she's got a lot of things that could come out and, and haunt her. And, the, and especially the Wall Street thing is a big deal. Yeah, I, I agree. To me, she's Hillary Clinton 2.0. I mean, and the, for, for all the reasons I disliked Hillary Clinton as a candidate, I, I dislike Jill Brand. And not, not just the fact that she's a total political shapeshifter. I mean, she started off pretty conservative. Then all of a sudden, she, she hops on, I think, everything. She, when she was in the House, in fact, she got the, her fellow New York Democrats, nicknamed her Tracy Flick. And that's after, you know, after, I don't know if you've, have you seen Election, the movie Election? I've seen Election. Okay, good. I want to make, I want to assume, it's, it's, I, I love that movie. I actually show it in my, my politics and film class a lot of the time. And it's, oh, is it this totally odious high school kid? Played by Reese Reese Witherspoon. If you haven't watched the movie, folks, totally Perfect. worth watching. Oh, it's a great movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I just boy, I just get a bad feel about her. You know, she was. I should point out, she was a defense attorney for Philip Morris back yeah. when she was in legal practice, and essentially one of the things she did was help to prevent the release of the company's own scientific data that basically indicated that it knew of ties between smoking and cancer. Um. You mentioned the finance ties. Um, I, I mean, okay, my my initial instinct is to mistrust old politicians. <laughs> I'm sorry, but 
<laughs> but there are some more than others. And my sense of things is to the extent that, that Kirsten Gillibrand has, has any sort of ideals, uh, uh, you know, any sort of things that matter to her, it basically just is the advancement of Kirsten Gillibrand's career. And, and that's pretty much it. And, and that's what I saw in Hillary Clinton as well. Which is why, even though I might have agreed with Hillary Clinton more on policy, I was drawn much more to Bernie because Bernie felt like he was actually a real human being in the same way that Donald Trump, who I don't agree with on policy at all. And so I think, she, I think she's not going to do well, and I think there are a lot of reasons for it, and I think that's a good thing, essentially. Yeah, I, you know, um, obviously... You know, I I don't agree with with Gillibrand on much, um, if anything at all. Yeah. But I, but I, you know, I I definitely see the Tracy Flick thing. I read that too, and it and it made me laugh because it really is true. She is a shapeshifter in a lot of ways, and I I think that um, you know, after Hillary Clinton sort of came, and there was there were all these shifts. There was this sort of walking back of a lot of policies that she talked about. Uh, when she was first lady and, you know, even some policies when she had been senator. And, you know, I, I just I feel like we're going to see that happening with somebody like Gillibrand. And, you know, the I think that both the right and the left, I mean, I'm going to go out on another limb and say that that we're, we're all pretty fractured right now. And, you know, it's, it's um, our parties are sort of moving in a lot of different directions. And, you know, Gillibrand is the type of candidate that sits in a very specific camp. I always tell people it's like we're sitting in boxes. And the smart thing for a politician to do would be to kind of sit in a box and have your hand in another box and a leg in another box and sort of, you know, reach out. And and um, for somebody who has been, you know, a bit of a shapeshifter and maybe not completely genuine, um, she certainly doesn't come across that way. Um, you know, she jumped onto the Me Too bandwagon, which, you know, I think there was a lot of fatigue with that towards the end in, in terms of politics or politicians jumping on that bandwagon. So I think this stuff's going to come back and haunt her. And man, that Wall Street thing is not going to sit well with progressives on the left and and uh, you know, people like that. Yeah, you know, and to me, a bigger thing is I, I, I'm, I'm tired of the whole coastal establishment type finance wall street people being being the folks to keep on coming to the fore i mean and and for a lot of reasons i just think that that's a that's a view of represents a a problem in terms of campaigning but i also think it represents a view of 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 america that's kind of fundamentally uh uh blinkered i guess in many ways which is why i think somebody like a like a amy klobuchar would maybe be a better candidate though she wouldn't necessarily be my first choice but 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 just for that reason i mean and it seems like it seems to me that the that the kirsten gillibrand sort of type of democrat is exactly the type of democrat that the party in the country doesn't need right now and and so i'm i'm kind of i don't know her personally or anything but i i certainly hope that her campaign is, is not successful because i don't think that she would be at all good for the country i don't think she'd be a very good opponent for donald trump either wow. i think that plays right into the kind of exactly the sort of things that donald trump was able to use against hillary clinton though i think that that uh that gillibrand would be a less flawed candidate than clinton but i mean geez who wouldn't be a less flawed candidate than clinton but that's a, that's a whole whole other story there so yeah. I, I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that 
Um, I, I feel like a lot of people tend to write him off and say, well, you know, there are a lot of people on the left who hate him. I mean, they really hate him and they and therefore, you know, they, they hate all of his policies and, and it's all about politics. And that's true. But in order to beat somebody like Donald Trump, because he was underestimated, um, you know, um, and, and I actually I mean, even on the right and, and I voted for him, I underestimated him. I didn't think he was going to win. And he came out and, you know, he 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 won. I was I was very shocked on election night. And I think that it goes to show you that, um, you know, there is there is sort of this desire for somebody who is different than than, you know, that sort of on the, on the left anyway, for, or on the right from somebody who's not necessarily a coastal elite. I mean, I know, you know, Donald Trump is, is a very wealthy man and he's from New York and, you know, it, it obviously, you know, on paper, it doesn't look the same, but he is anything but your traditional yeah. candidate. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not geography. It's not even money. It's sort of your view of the world, I guess. And, and, and Donald Trump, he may be, obviously he's a New York billionaire, but he's so very different from the Republican establishment in in a lot of ways. In some ways, he's not at all. But 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 yeah, and I don't think you can fake that convincingly to the voters. No, and I don't think Gillibrand would be able to. No, no. I mean, just with her history, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, if I if I'm a Republican, I'm maybe hoping that somebody, at least if I'm a Trump Republican, I'm hoping that somebody like that, uh, like yeah, that, I actually crossed. I don't know. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't see that. You know, I don't see that panning out her way. I don't see her at the center podium in the debates. But no, well, I I I hope you're right about that. Certainly, that's like I said, there will be plenty more Democratic uh, candidates announcing and a whole bunch more that I actually like considerably more than that and think will be a lot better. But anyway, that's that's for the future. And that actually uh, wraps us up. But before you go, I should mention that as soon as Kristen and I are done recording this show, we're going to be recording our the special supporters only after show. And this week, we're going to be talking about, you might be wondering, hey, what about the, the Steve King thing? We will be talking about that for sure. Just some remar- remarks about white supremacy. Also, that Tucker Carlson monologue that so many folks have been talking about and, and some other stuff as well. So, if you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And if you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. Also, well, I totally enjoyed it. It's been a blast doing the show with you today, Kristen. Um, hope you've enjoyed it too. You know, yeah, um, I, I definitely did. I, you know, I, I loved it. Love talking. I always love talking to you and hearing what you have to say. So, well, it was Thank you. I, no, it, like I said, I, I loved it. I, I I loved you on the Policy Scout. And so I knew this was going to be great. But but listeners, let us know. You know, we don't do this for our own satisfaction, though. It's if we don't, if we're not having fun, why should we be doing it? But let us know what you thought. And again, to get in touch, mail to politicsguys.com or you can comment on politicsguys.com. Or you can even comment on our Facebook page, and that's facebook.com slash page. And if you don't already subscribe to this show, it really would help us out if you do that, as would sharing episodes uh, and leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you happen to be listening to us on. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.